0: the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about discrimination by healthcare providers for obese people, weighing in on airlines weighing you, chronic illness apps for mental health, and getting down and dirty in the garden. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's health headline. About one in four Canadian adults 26.6% are currently living with obesity. Obesity rates in Canadian adults are higher in men compared to women, 28% versus 24.7, respectively. Joining me on the line to talk about what is actually a very complex medical condition and and chronic illness is Kelly Stecker, MD, OBGYN keynote, author, president, and co-founder at Patient Care Heroes. She's here to not only share her journey with obesity, she's also gonna talk to us about this complex chronic illness. Good evening, Dr. Stecker. Good evening, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And I and I should say that I found you on LinkedIn. You'd crafted a, an incredible article sharing your own story, your own journey with obesity and how you had lost and gained 100 pounds three times in your life. And I what did. that was like for you how you had been felt to be invisible or tried to even make yourself invisible. What a challenge your obesity had been at different times throughout your life. So thank you so much for the article and thanks so much for joining me. Um, So I wanna talk about uh, your journey. Thank you so much for sharing your story in advance, but also how obesity relates to hypertension, how it relates to Mm -hmm. diabetes, high cholesterol, and how if we only treated obesity and viewed it for what it was, then we may actually have healthier societies. So if you don't mind uh, sharing your own journey with obesity. Yeah, so I
1: was overweight at a really young age. And unfortunately in my childhood, my mom had a history of modeling, right? And so she was kind of the typical Um, narcissistic parent that really viewed us as an extension of her. And when we were not perfect or viewed to be perfect or viewed to be what was culturally acceptable, then that was a challenge that she wanted to come at. And the focus became about my weight and how she could affect change in that arena. And instead of doing it to be healthy. She wanted to do it in all the crash dieting ways that we see people stressed out and challenged with now. So at a very young age in high school, early high school, I was on Jenny Craig, right? And I know a lot of people were on Jenny Craig. And, and some of the real challenges I had with that were when my only validation from my mother was positive when I was losing weight, then you can imagine how that becomes quickly, you know, an eating disorder, right? Because you are Mm -hmm. getting your only positive feedback in your life from how you look, what your weight is, and if you can fit into, you know, one of the sizes that she deemed acceptable. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I was in a fitting room with her and she immediately said, this is the largest size I'm ever going to buy you. And that was really something stuck in me, especially as a seventh grader who really had just hit puberty, it's hard to imagine, okay, well, however tall I was, now I'm over six feet tall. However, this is the information that your your parent, your main caregiver is giving you. And so that really warps your sense of what is my value? What is my identity? I only have value in this world if I look a certain way or act a certain way or fit in a certain size. And that's something that I think culturally we have failed to get out of unfortunately.
0: We certainly Uh have. And, and you talk about obesity. And I don't think a lot of people realize this, that obesity is not a failure, not a weakness. It's a chronic illness and it's a complex chronic illness. Yeah. And it's got so many moving parts.
1: Yeah. And, You know, just briefly before we kind of go into that, it's been interesting hearing some of the rhetoric around obesity, especially now that some of the newer medications have come out. And even a large population in the medical community have felt the need to almost come out against some of these medications, which I think is so disturbing. And the reason I think it's disturbing is they're saying things that are so misguided and really play to the stigma of being overweight or obese. And what they're saying is, well, this is just an easy way out. Obese people are lazy. Um, They just expect, you know, a magic pill to lose weight, all of these things, right? And for people who have medical conditions along these lines, this is really hurtful and unnecessary, especially for medical providers who do not have education in obesity management um, to come out and say these things. Because I take care of patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome every day. I take care of patients with diabetes every day. There's large components of insulin resistance, and there's large components of this that we should be able to help them with because that is a chronic disease. So I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome shortly after I hit puberty. And with this complex medical condition, it can affect your cholesterol. It can affect whether you have hair growth. It can affect um, your blood pressure. It puts us more at risk for gestational diabetes in pregnancy. So there's a lot of things that go into this, and that's even if you are a normal-weighted individual. And by that, that whole Thing has stigma, right? Normal weighted in the BMI calculations and everything else, which I think needs to be revamped significantly. Um, however, if your BMI is in the, quote, normal range, you still have a lot of risk factors if you've had this diagnosis of PCOS. And so when I treat these patients um, along the lines of their, you know, if they're overweight or if they're obese, it is really relieving to me to be able to help them with more medication management now because we have better access to GLP medications. The problem is coverage for these things, but you know we can address that later. However, when I hear a medical provider talking about how this person just wants an easy way out when they are calorie restricting and working out frequently and all those things and have this element of insulin resistance, that really is misleading to the general public and isn't fair to people who have been working through these issues their whole life.
0: My guest is Dr. Kelly Stecker. She's an MD, OBGYN, keynote author, president, and co-founder Patient Care Heroes. We're talking about obesity and um, also the new medications, the new classification of medications for treating patients with obesity. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Stecker. Um, we're talking about the new medications that are available for patients who are experiencing obesity, GLP one agonists. Um, Ozempic is, uh, one of them, um, uh, Trulicity people are, we are hearing of people being prescribed these and having fast weight loss and almost inappropriate weight loss. And, and yet we're also hearing of this discrimination against people with obesity. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I
1: think this really gets into the weeds of the ethics of medicine and basically who has access to appropriate care, who has access to medication. And in the United States, we really do a poor job giving access to people who really are in need. And I'm sure everyone has read the dilemma over insulin and being able to afford insulin here. And thankfully, the U.S. government has gotten involved in managing that crisis. However, it really seems like the, the elite, right, the celebrities, the rich, they can buy what they need. Meanwhile, a lot of the individuals who desperately need this medication to avoid complications of diabetes or avoid the other risks associated with obesity, they're, they're having a hard time getting this medication covered by insurance companies. And then that, that proceeds to be thousands of dollars a month that they'd have to fork over this, for this medication, And so when I look Mm -hmm. at, you know, people like um, Mindy Lahiri, I believe is her name, who by all regards was probably a normal BMI, um, and now she has admittedly used Ozempic. Um, It really makes me wonder who's prescribing this medication. However, it's not really our place to kind of dig into that because people can have complications with their health that they're not willing to share with the general public as well. Um certainly I have questions over the ethics of some of these individuals being given this medication and obviously they can afford this medication out of pocket. However, we really have to kind of give these individuals some of the benefit of the doubt because no one knows your health risks and the things that are going on in your life except you and I think Um, It would be, you know, irresponsible for me as a physician to assume that I know whether someone has diabetes or hypertension or other things along those lines. And I know there's a lot of people worked up about this issue. Um, However, we have to have faith in our colleagues that uh, they're, they're following medical ethics and they're doing the right thing for patients.
0: Mm -hmm. You make a great point. Obesity is associated with hypertension, which hypertension accounts for over 20 million physician visits annually in Canada. And it's a cost of, uh, 20 billion dollars annually in this country you you make a case in your article um, that obesity is related to hypertension diabetes and and high cholesterol and diabetes is one of the most common chronic diseases affecting people living in canada and in part uh some of the increased prevalence is the related to the rising rate of obesity in this country Mm -hmm. and i'm sure in the u.s it's the same Um, you know we could make a case for if people were treated properly, people with obesity were treated properly, we could save a lot of money and a lot of lives and care for our people better. Absolutely agree with you. And a lot of the research coming out
1: on the GLP-1 medication is showing awesome, you know, things that are happening in your body other than just decreasing insulin resistance, and helping with weight loss. It's helping to have some cardio protection. We're seeing some newer studies that are helping help your immune system to better deal with cancer. And I think over the next 6 to 12 months, we're going to see a lot of positive outcomes. Um, The thing that I personally have heard from my patients is it decreases the chatter of needing the food or stressing about food, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but people who are on a diet, whether they're 10 or they're 70, you become a little bit preoccupied, we'll say, with food, right? You feel guilty if you eat the, quote, wrong thing. Um, There's a lot of shame that goes along with dieting as well. You get hard on yourself. For a lot of us, we're kind of an all or none kind of person who we're 100% on the bandwagon or we're totally off. And so a lot of that is dramatically decreased with the GLP-1 medications, and so there's going to be research into eating disorders, and there's already research into addiction with these medications as well. And when you add all that up, if we can just simply help people when they're starting this journey of obesity or even being overweight, we can prevent all of those other things from developing. And I think that should really be the main focus of our preventative care, because If our healthcare systems are going to survive, which I know you're having shortages just like we are here in terms of physicians and nurses and everything else, but if our systems are going to be able to maintain the needs of the population, we really need to do a better job making sure that we're not making people sicker before we help them.
0: I, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I've certainly heard from patients of mine who have been prescribed Ozempic that that chatter is gone in in their head. That constant obsession about food that they it's the first time that they've eaten normally or they feel like they've eaten normally and um, that they're like other people. One one patient told me yeah. um, and, you know, they feel better, have more energy, um, you know, look, look younger and you know they Mm -hmm. just have a little bit um more joie de vivre for those patients that i've seen who are obese who have obesity and um, who have been prescribed some of these new glp uh one agonist medications so um it's it's very interesting i i really appreciate you coming on the show if if there's somebody out there listening and they have been struggling with weight and their doctor has been saying to them, you know, I need you to lose 10 pounds or 20 pounds. I hear that a lot from patients. My doctor Mm -hmm. said I need to lose 10 pounds when I think they need to lose 60 or 80. Um, Mm -hmm. What would you say to them in terms of educating them to be an advocate for themselves? You know, that's such an interesting question as someone (laughs) who
1: has been in healthcare and has seen many doctors through my life. I remember the first time I had a doctor tell me I should lose weight again was kind of right after I had hit puberty. And having a physician or healthcare provider say that without any sort of guidance is a very daunting, Mm -hmm. challenging um, whirlwind that it puts you into because you feel, okay, well, I'm a failure. And I can't do basic things in my life correctly, right? Because uh, of course, that's what a lot of us do. We blame ourselves for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Or at least that's a lot of the women (laughs) I talk to on a daily basis. Um, And so, you know, I think the, the message is you're not alone, right? I think the big issue is we feel like we must be the biggest freak show alone person in the whole world. And we're the only ones struggling with this. And I remember when I had lost 100 pounds in college and then eventually had gained that back and had kids and life and everything else. You feel even worse. Because you were at the top of the mountain, you got there. You got the, you know, the quote unquote, you know, BMI where you wanted to be, and then it's the slippery slope back, and that really shows the chronicity of the disease, right? I was working out. I was doing what I could. Life happens. Stress happens. There's a lot of factors that play a role. And yes, could I have eaten better in residency and medical school? Absolutely, Um, but this is a, a ongoing, lifelong challenge that people have. And so to feel not alone, that you're not some horrible you know, person who's a failure and you're lazy and all these things that people are told, unfortunately, um, and that there is a community out there that you can find support. Because I think that when we are lacking connection
0: and we're in this by ourselves, there's really no way to overcome these challenges hmm You make a great point that they need to be provided with some guidance, not just that information. Thank you so much, Dr. Stecker. I really appreciate you coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Keeping the theme of weighing in, we're going to weigh in on something that, uh, Air New Zealand is doing. Over the next month, they're going to be weighing their passengers all in the interest of safety and data collection should other airlines do this how do you feel about this would you want to weigh in at the gate one 877 9898 let me know if you'd want to weigh in at the gate you know but we have to look behind the sensationalized headlines as we often do in the media this is actually a voluntary program and it's anonymous but you know people don't trust so anonymity i mean depends if you're a trusting person or not a trusting person the airlines already weigh your luggage the fuel the food that's brought onto the plane and the crew so why not weigh the passengers uh, the purpose of this it has been designed to calculate the average weight of passengers over the next month in the interest of safety so that planes can fly more efficiently but a lot of people are clutching their pearls on this one giving it a collective gasp who wants to weigh themselves never mind in public even though the number is not going to be shown on the scale and nor will the airline people uh, have access to that number as well safety has nothing to do with discrimination safety you know it's all about uh those planes flying in the safest manner possible but privacy you know that's another issue as well some people might be horrified by this is a better option to add your weight online when you book your ticket who wants to do that nothing online can be erased people don't even like to admit to their weight they don't like to weigh themselves i see that in my clinical practice where people just they're, they have an interest in losing weight, but they don't wanna start with standing on the scale. And sometimes it's just uh, a measure. It's, it's biofeedback in a sense, but it's not always accurate because your weight can change on the daily because of water weight, whether you've been constipated or not. So whether you've had a bowel movement, so it can change three to four pounds between days of the week. And, you know, weight carries a lot of baggage and a lot of stigma still. You know, you can look at two people and think they might weigh the same, but they may not because of bone density, muscle mass. Have you been working out more? Muscle weighs more than fat. And then of course the water weight. Sometimes people retain fluid, but your size can affect a lot of things in your life. It can affect how much you get paid the quality of your health care, because as we heard in the previous segment, there can be discrimination. People who make more money get better access to health care. Sometimes health care is for the ultra rich and the elite, even in a country like Canada, it depends on who, you know, access to health care, the geographical area in which you live, demographics, color, creed. There's so much, that it depends on that weight is a very loaded and heavy subject. So with so much on the line, it's no wonder that stepping onto the scale can bring up a lot of emotion because this is just such, such an issue for people, how much they weigh, because of course there is a stigma, there is associated self-esteem issues. This can trigger people to feel badly about themselves. It can feel like judgment day and they're gonna get ready to go on a fabulous trip. And all of a sudden they have to weigh themselves. They can feel pretty badly, get pretty deflated. They're testing this particular um, program on the 17 hour flight from, uh, from New Zealand to New York City. So it's 17 hours anyway i imagine you'd lose some weight on that trip but how often do you weigh yourself it got me thinking about that how do you feel about this give me a call or text the number is 1-877-399-9898 1-877-399-9898 to not weigh yourself because you're afraid of what the number is and you know what it doesn't mean if your number is high that you're necessarily unhealthy or higher than what you want it to be that you're unhealthy oftentimes people gain weight in midlife it can be associated with less movement less running around um and apathy Uh, i heard somebody say that they felt that they had gained weight in their marriage because they had become complacent they didn't feel like they had to look good for their spouse anymore Has that ever happened to you? Have you thought that or felt that your spouse wasn't taking the interest or the time in themselves, but there may be reasons to stop weighing yourselves as well, because your self-worth can be affected, especially if you weigh yourself every day or regularly, it can harm your self-confidence because it can almost create this false narrative of my self-worth is conditional. It's conditional on the number that I see on the scale. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you're good or bad based on that number that you see? Has that number gone up through the pandemic? It's gone up for a lot of people. A lot of people gained the COVID-19 pounds, that is. But, you know, so this is something that, you know, it is important. It's important to know numbers. And I've talked about that in the past. And, um, but before we go into that, I'm going to take our caller hello we have a caller on the hi line there. hi how are you yep.
2: i'm good you're you're still my favorite talk show host
0: <laughs> Aww, anyway. that's that's so <laughs> nice of you to say <laughs> don um anyway um i like
2: women with a little extra weight on them i don't like the anorexic ones i think i and i'm in the boat with most guys but anyway so that oh i don't think it works because you only lose like 12 pounds and then if you stop taking it you gain it back and it's pharmaceutical drug and all the rest of that stuff what uh, are you talking about sorry
0: did you say Ozempic?
2: Yeah, Ozampic. Yeah, sorry, I mispronounced it. That's okay. Intentionally.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, so you got your medical degree on Facebook. I'm kidding. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I I, I
2: mispronounced it. Sorry. That's
0: okay. Did you listen to the previous segment about that? Ozampic.
2: Yeah, I've heard all the ads. I've heard all the reviews. I've heard all the studies on it. I've heard all the stuff. But the thing is, okay, so, okay, so. Let's say you take something like, okay, so you know what C. difficile, C. difficile is like the bacteria that get when you go into the hospital and you can't keep food down and everything runs through you. C. 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 difficile, C. diff. Yeah. 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 Okay. So. All right. So there was an experiment. There was a bunch of experiments done. There's a doctor in um, Calgary and he takes a. A poo uh, sample from one of your relatives, and then he takes it, whips it all up, and then he gives you a poo implant. And the thing is, it puts mm-hmm. the housing in there. Like you have 800 different types of friendly bacteria in your digestive system, and the thing is, is it, I mean, I've, I've got too many thoughts going at the same time. But anyway, so when they put that in there, the the whole, the whole thing is you're you're putting the whole community in there at once. You're installing like a city, and that's why it works because. Because the, you, you can try, you know, this bacteria and that bacteria, but the fact is, your mood, your emotions, everything is run by bacteria. And like, there's whole right, groups of people.
0: I agree with you on that. Yeah. But they're two entirely different subjects. The other is about insulin okay. resistance. Wait. But thank you so much for the call, Dawn. I've also got Evelyn on the line. Hi. Uh, hello, Evelyn. Hi, Evelyn. Hey, how are you? Good. I'm okay. I'm, okay. Um, I'm a little. I'm a little surprised by
3: the weight issue with regards to the planes and stuff like that. If they're so conscientious about that, make a plane suited for the overweight and for the skinny people. Because I, I, I don't understand how how they can actually get <laughs> get away with that. I I, seriously, even even with disability, people having walkers and canes and wheelchairs and stuff like that on the plane. It's sort of, you know, it's sort of redundant because the fact is, if you want your if you want business, you have to cater to your passengers. So obviously it's actually was a slap in the face when I heard it the first time. Like, what? You can't wait. No,
0: I, 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 I do. Yeah. In the interest of efficiency and safety so that, the, that the planes are actually, you know the skies are a little bit safer Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard because there's
3: going to be a lot of, a lot of um, bias on this because the people that, that are, are healthy, that are healthy and, and do, do uh, cater to the, their their well-being and stuff like that, they're the ones that are going to win over because that's that's the plain size, right? It'll be catering to the skinny instead of the fat. So it's sort of... Well- a-
0: I don't know. I think that people are getting larger and larger. I mean, I think we're going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot larger people and they need to know that. And also it's not necessarily if somebody weighs more that they're less healthy than somebody who weighs less. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's really I, I about, you know, and you it's just, kind of an average weight that they're looking for. You know, what is the, you know, what is the average weight of, of people who fly in a month in the summer? Um, kind of a thing. Yeah. They've actually done it before. Uh, this isn't the first time. So they, I think they did it in 2021. 20, I think it was. Um, so yeah, I, I have to say, I'm, you know, I'm a little hesitant to stand on the scale <laughs> at the gate uh, myself. Yeah, exactly, But, yeah. you know, but in the interest of safety, um, I, I, I think I have to default to that. But Evelyn, thank you're you welcome. so much for your call as well. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, so I mean, weight is a is a hot topic, and um, you know, a lot of baggage here in the weight department. Uh, and so, do you think it's a good idea to weigh yourself every day? I mean, maybe instead of weighing yourself, you could give your number at the at the airport. But you know, a lot of people underestimate what they weigh, and they certainly underestimate how much they need to lose and you know we as healthcare providers we don't do a great job doing that we don't do a great job talking to patients about the importance of weight about the importance of abdominal circumference abdominal girth bmi blood pressure cholesterol levels we don't do a good job about that you know those are numbers that you should know and knowing your weight can be motivating and it can be non-triggering for people or as i said for some it can be like judgment day but what are some of the healthier ways maybe just have your healthcare provider weigh you once a year you don't even have to have them tell you but honestly i feel it's best to face things head on the other thing you can do is try to eat healthier exercise don't pick up some new habits like cut down on alcohol don't eat after six o'clock in the evening no snacks that kind of thing notice how your clothes fit do they feel looser or more comfortable are you buying uh lower sizes smaller sizes i i mean i myself have a range of clothing (laughs) size 4 to 14. um do they feel looser or more comfortable your clothing and you know how do you feel physically do you feel more energetic are you more productive do you feel lighter you lighter in your step do you wake up feeling refreshed if you're feeling better and more energetic as a result of eating nutritious foods working out taking care of yourself that's more than enough reassurance that you're on the right path. And it may not be a triggering event if you go to the airport and are asked to stand on a scale. We're going to be talking about what life is like to live with a chronic illness, specifically IBD, but many patients live with other chronic illnesses, diabetes, Parkinson's, MS, there are so many, and and life can be very different, and I have some tips for you as well. But joining me on the line now to talk about irritable bowel diseases is Dr. Gilad G. Kaplan. He's a gastroenterologist who is internationally renowned for studying the global epidemiology of IBD. Good evening, Dr. Kaplan.
4: Good evening, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me on, on the show tonight.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining the program. If you wouldn't mind uh, for the listeners explaining what IBD is, what it stands for, what are some of the symptoms, and uh, what is the prevalence?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease. It consists of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and these are chronic inflammatory diseases where the your body's immune system attacks your intestines, and it can cause debilitating symptoms such as abdominal pain, diarrhea, and, and even rectal bleeding. And these are chronic diseases that are most commonly diagnosed in young individuals in the prime of their lives. Most people with IBD require medications to suppress their immune system. And when these drugs don't work, they often need surgery to remove disease portions of their, their bowel. So it can impair and severely impact the quality of life um, through these debilitating symptoms um, impacting the people's ability to work Um, And in terms of the the prevalence of epidemiology disease, um, currently about 320,000 people in Canada are living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, that represents roughly 0.8% of the population.
0: And and so that's fairly significant. Um, I I actually think I said irritable bowel disease, but anyway, inflammatory bowel diseases, thank you. the other thing you say that mostly people are diagnosed uh, when they're young, kind of in the, the prime, although I think there's many different primes of life, <laughs> but um, at, you know, at a young age and it's autoimmune, is this something that, that can be treated? Does it go away?
4: Yeah. So first of all, um, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis can be diagnosed at any age. There are children under the age of two that can be diagnosed with the disease and we diagnose it in individuals over the age of 80, but as, as you described, the highest age group that gets diagnosed is adolescents, early early ages, like 20s and, and, and 30s. And so, um, and again, striking people um, at, you know, primarily like what I consider at times where people are just starting their careers, they're just starting their, their personal lives and getting everything kind of started. And so if they get hit with a disease like this, which is chronic and incurable, um, then then they have huge impacts on life decisions that then could potentially carry over and ripple over the decades as, as they age. Now, in terms of treatments, there actually are lots and lots of therapies. Um, many advances have happened even in the last, last few years. Um, our understanding of the pathogenesis or why this disease occurs has increased um, dramatically over the past 10 years. And, and those understandings have allowed us to design Drugs that treat the disease to suppress immune system to drive people from a state of active inflammation and disease into a state of, of remission where they can get back and, and be on their, on their lives with good quality of life.
0: Uh-huh. and you know this is difficult for parents because parents are obviously raising young children adolescents they're launching kids it's difficult to launch kids these days especially after the pandemic what we've been through with the pandemic so this not only worries and of course no one ever wants their child no matter what age they are to be sick but this is something that can be a burden for people in their 50s and 60s who are looking Um, to retire. They're looking, you know, to towards an empty nest. And and that may not be the case if something like uh, Crohn's disease, you know, stops a person, you know, as they're being launched or as they're getting their career, they may not be able to work. The symptoms that you describe sound very debilitating and may have other implications.
4: Yeah. And you know what, actually, you actually struck on a number of really important points here. So first of all, when we look at incidents, that's the number of new diagnoses made every year, the, the highest incidence actually we're seeing is rising in children with IBD. So as you mentioned, parents who are taking care of, of a child who's 10, 12, 13 years old, who is now diagnosed with chronic disease, that has a huge impact, not, not only on the child, but their siblings, their parents, their school. All of that has a huge impact. Uh, and we, we call that kind of a caregiver burden and the stress and the challenges they face. And here's another really interesting thing from our, our, the report that we, we published. It's not just children that are, are, are being affected by this, but people who are, are diagnosed 10, 20 years ago, they're aging. Um, we're actually finding that seniors with in inflammatory bowel disease is the fastest growing demographic of in inflammatory bowel disease. And the reason why that is, is because we still make new diagnoses in individuals over the age of 65, but also people are, are getting older. Somebody who was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in their 30s, in the 1990s will be in their 70s in 2030. And what that means is when, as a gastroenterologist, I'm trying, trying to take care of somebody with inflammatory bowel disease, it's a very difficult disease to diagnose and to manage. But now if I have to do it in the context of age-related comorbidities, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or things like dementia, it makes my job so much more challenging. And then to bring it back to the caregiver burden piece which you, which you raised. So imagine somebody in their, in their 40s or 50s and their parent has inflammatory bowel disease. So not only managing, thinking about the the, the parents that's dealing for the child, but now we're starting to see aging people with inflammatory bowel disease, where we're seeing a caregiver burden to their their older children caring for their their parents. And you know, if you get diagnosed or have debilitating inflammatory bowel disease as a senior and you have diarrhea, rectal bleeding, that might be the difference between being able to live in your home independently. And having to have um, home care, or even potentially being put in a nursing home, so this has a huge impact on on all spectrums of of ages across the the spectrum of ages.
0: Absolutely, and it does pose a financial burden, I would imagine, as well for families, not only for the patient, but uh, also for their um, their children uh, as well. Yeah. Um, Well, absolutely, and And in fact, their life.
4: Yeah, from a financial perspective. um, So we, we launched the 2023. Crohn's and Colitis Canada's IVD Impact Report. And one of the big parts, parts of that was to look at the, the the financial impact of this disease to Canada. And we looked at it both from a healthcare system, a societal perspective, and the person living with inflammatory bowel disease. And our estimates show that from a healthcare system perspective, we spend about $3.3 billion a year on managing inflammatory bowel disease. And, and that includes things like hospitalization, surgery, outpatient care, as well as the drugs that we use to treat the disease. But that doesn't include... The indirect cost, the cost tip borne by society by somebody being unemployed because they have a disease or somebody who has reduced work productivity or, or, or a parent who has to take time off work to manage their kid. So there's such a huge impact both to the health care system financially as well as to society uh, borne by these chronic illnesses
0: there certainly is and that's why often these subjects were you know not just talking to the patient but we're talking to the caregivers and the family members and also I just want to mention um we also have another guest uh Leah Kaplan who's also on the line who is somebody who lives with inflammatory bowel disease hello Leah hi thank you for having me huh oh well, thank you so much for joining me so your uh do some your patient partner here and um, you're living with inflammatory bowel disease. Tell me what that's a little bit about your story, if you don't mind. For
5: sure. So um, I was diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, in particular, Crohn's disease during the pandemic. So for me, I was in my early 20s. And so prior to my diagnosis, I just had a family member who had IBD, but I was very vaguely aware about what IBD was. Um, And so my story was that I just had difficult and worsening symptoms to the point where I was no longer able to function, as Dr. Kaplan was saying, really important point in my life just finishing my undergrad. And so it's just the point where I wasn't able to function and do my schooling. And that's when it was time for me to go to the emergency department, which resulted in many hospitalizations. Um, But luckily, I had a great team of gastroenterologists, and we were able to work towards a diagnosis. Um, And then once you're diagnosed with IBD, in particular Crohn's disease for me, we were able to trial different medications and finally found a great match. And that's kept me stable and given me a great quality of life since then.
0: That is fantastic. Um, Dr. Kaplan, how is somebody diagnosed? Is it strictly symptoms, but how do we confirm that diagnosis?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So as a gastroenterologist, the, the primary diagnosis is an investigation called the colonoscopy, and that's actually a test where we um, give the people medications to make them sleepy, and we introduce a camera in from their bottom end and look at their colon directly. We can visualize that and go all the way around the whole colon into the small bowel. We can visualize um, disease bowel, and often with a disease like inflammatory bowel disease, we'll see inflammation in in the presence of ulceration, and then we can actually take biopsies, tissue. Um, and remove that from the bowel and then send it to a pathologist to look under the microscope to confirm the diagnosis.
0: My guests are Dr. Gilad G. Kaplan, a gastroenterologist who is internationally renowned for studying the global epidemiology of inflammatory bowel diseases and also patient partner, Leah Kaplan. Thanks to both of you for staying on the line. And uh, thanks for all of your information, Dr. Kaplan, and uh, you as well, Leah, for sharing your story. Um, Leah you know you were you're at the prime of your life one of, one of the primes of life you were finishing your undergrad and um, you're diagnosed with this autoimmune disease that is going to be chronic and you didn't feel well at the time I'm so happy you're feeling so much better that they found the right medication for you that's awesome but what what is what goes through your mind when you're that age and you're thinking, this is a chronic disease, there's no cure. This is something I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life.
5: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I think it should be talked about a lot more, especially getting diagnosed at such a young age. And so I think when you get diagnosed with a a big illness, whatever that may be, in my case, Crohn's disease, is really um, it took a long time to accept it. And I think From what I heard from my friends and other people in the community, people go through their diagnosis and acceptance in different ways. And for me, it just took me time to try and understand what was going on with me. And finally, just, you know, um, do some research, talk to my physicians and just really work closely with the teams that were taking care of me and just trying to make the best of it. And for me, that meant, you know, sticking very closely to my treatments, working closely with my physicians, but also trying to take um a positive view on things and telling myself, okay, what can I do to make my experience a little bit better? And how can I help my community? And that's kind of how I became involved in Crohn's and Colitis Canada's work and just in uh, trying to advocate for IBD patients in general.
0: That's, that's fantastic work and um, wonderful. In you know, do you think people who live with chronic illnesses, do you think uh, it gets harder as the years go on?
5: I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I still have uh, quite a few years to to go before I can come to a conclusion. But from my experiences, at least for IBD, I think in my experience, IBD is a very cyclical um, disease, as in you can go from flaring, which is when my symptoms are very active, to being in remission, such as right now, where I would say I live a totally normal life. So I'm not really sure what the future holds, but I just, um, you know, we have fantastic treatments out there and I'm lucky that mine works and that just keeps me, uh, yeah, having a really good quality of life.
0: Well, I mean, if your positivity has anything to do with it, I think you'll be doing amazing all throughout um, <laughs> because it's just such a great attitude to have. Uh, and and it's got to be so hard when you feel so great and then, you know, it, it exasperates like many uh, medical conditions, like, MS, for example, or, or Parkinson's disease, or I mean, even diabetes, people who live um, with chronic conditions like diabetes and, and hypertension, where they're having to watch those numbers all the time. Dr. Kaplan, what do you hear from your patients? And, and have there been advancements, enough advancements made in IBD as compared with other chronic illnesses like mental illness or Alzheimer's disease? We really haven't seen a tremendous amount of progress. Um, what what do you feel the future holds, and and do you feel like we're making a lot of progress in IBD?
4: Yeah, so I, I think we're making tremendous progress. Um, just this year alone, um, we've had a brand new therapy that's come to to market. Um, including, if you go back um, five years, in the last five years, several other new therapies have been designed to treat Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and they're all based on the fact that our our, our understanding of how the immune system interacts with the intestinal microbiome to lead to inflammation as that, that knowledge is advanced through through research and basic science. We've been able to monopolize that to figure out specific drug therapies that move towards precisely treating the branches of the immune system that, that caused the disease while leaving the rest of the immune system alone to do what, what it's designed to do. And so there is tremendous um, progress from that perspective. But, you know, want, one of the things you mentioned was was mental health. And I do want to touch on that as well, because um, we've, we've had a number of studies to show that people who live with chronic illnesses, particularly diseases like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, they're much more likely to suffer from, from mental health I- uh, illness such as depression and anxiety. Um, And it's very important for gastroenterology clinics to recognize that so you can screen for that in your, in your patients. And in fact, our inflammatory bowel disease clinic at the University of Calgary, we partner with mental health professionals, including having a counselor directly integrated into our clinic, because the problem is such is such a prevalent problem that we want to identify it and then connect people to the right people to get them their, their support. And one of the things that we're seeing is kind of the shift in movement to, um, in kind of the future of kind of gastroenterology clinics is developing kind of multidisciplinary clinics where, where you have IVD specialists, but you're partnered with dietitians that can help with diet nutrition but also mental health professionals like counselors so you can have kind of a holistic view of treating the, the person so you can optimize their their disease state so they can get into remission and have a good quality of life
0: that is awesome that's fantastic because with so many chronic illnesses and and as you mentioned in particular ibd people would get down depressed depleted anxious fear of the unknown, Um, you know, not just living between, um, you know, exacerbation and remission as well. So, I mean, that is just so great to hear. And so many other clinics in in other conditions need to be recognizing uh, the impact that it can have on mental health as well. So that is fantastic. Well, wonderful work, Dr. Kaplan. Thank you so much. And Leah, Thank thank you so much as well for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Where can people get more information?
4: So Crohn's and Colitis Canada, um, their website, if you put that into, into Google, has all the information that you need um, if you're somebody who's suffering from inflammatory bowel disease, if you are taking care of somebody with IBD or just interested in getting more information.
0: Wonderful. I really appreciate your time, both of you. Thank you so much for all that great information.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: I was reading an article recently, I came across an article about Ryan Mundy. He had retired from the NFL and suffered with depression after that. A lot of people suffer with depression after they retire. They no longer feel they have the same value. Um, they're not sure what to do with each day. And I imagine somebody who was in the NFL who'd who reached the upper echelon of sport must have a quite feel quite a fall um, after leaving that. And, and you know, it's not just, as I said, people who have reached such high levels but it's a lot of people who especially if your identity is tied up in your job or your identity is tied up in you know something that you love to do that you're no longer able to do for example so a lot of people might suffer from depression he talked about having developed a high tolerance for pain in the nfl but he wasn't okay he felt that hypermasculinity had something to do with his pain as as i mentioned nfl players and a lot of people might suffer with an identity crisis may deal with anxiety and depression lots of people smile on the outside and are crying on the inside i think it was robin williams who said people don't fake depression they fake being okay and there's not a lot of money flowing in his community he felt to solve this problem and so he set up Alkem, A-L-K-E-M-E. It's a mental health platform to meet the needs of the black community. Oftentimes the black community doesn't have the same access to resources that uh, uh, white people do. And so he felt it was important to find culturally intelligent care. And in his research, he found that less than 4% of psychiatrists were black and which is so significant. And a lot of people who don't have jobs don't have any insurance. Even people who have insurance don't have good enough insurance, especially in the U S he wanted to change deep rooted ideas about mental health. You know, so often, how often do you hear of somebody who suffered depression and you think I never knew they had depression. Robin Williams is a good one to think of. Um, but you might have friends or family and you they fake being okay on the outside, but they're not okay on the inside. It's very important that we have culturally sensitive providers. And in fact, they are critical to treating depression. So I wanted to talk to you about some of the very best mental health apps. I, you know, I, I've heard of some of these in the in the past you know in if i'm listening to a podcast i might hear somebody is sponsored by headspace for example uh or talkspace those were two that i have heard of uh, many times over and headspace seems to be rated very high for mindfulness mindfulness is so important in life not just in depression but even before then you know It's actually important in relationship health. It's important for your job. It's important in dealing with children. Mindfulness has so many applications. It slows us down. It helps us to remember what is actually important in life. It helps you to catch your breath, relax your mind. And in fact, this particular app, Headspace, actually reports that you might feel 14% less stressed in about 10 days, ultimately leading to more joy in your life. It can help with insomnia. Mindfulness helps put your mind to sleep, helps you to wake up refreshed. And, And research supports this. And the more good nights you get, the good nights of sleep you get, the better days that you have because insomnia, frequent wakings through the night, getting up early, they can all lead to decreased productivity, for example. They can lead to fatigue, they can lead to brain fog. But this is a way, one way, it's not the only way. There are other things as well that can help treat your depression. Many people need medication, for example. Exercise is another one. But mental health apps, I think, have a very good place in healthcare for people uh, to get the right help that they need or the, to complement the help that they're getting. And mindfulness is is so important. I, I have to say I had an injury on the tennis court this week. <laughs> I wasn't too happy about that. But nonetheless, I didn't do anything. Of course, the injuries that you have, they're never glorious. It's just like, I got out of the car. Anyway, I hit a forehand and I pulled my calf muscle. I, you know, I had pain. Um, but I have to say, I I mean, I did the exact wrong thing that you're supposed to do continue playing, but I felt that the people had come over to our club and they'd made their, the effort and I wasn't going to move. I was just going to hit because sometimes I notice there's a lot of women on the court that don't move. Sometimes men too; they don't move. They just hit the ball. And I thought, I'm just going to hit the ball. And I tried a little bit of mindfulness in that moment. Uh, later, I tried more mindfulness as the pain was excruciating. Um, and just to, but I, but I have to say, in terms of slowing down on the court, and I came to a stop. Let me tell you, I felt my game was a little bit better. My hits, not my game, my hits was better. It was slower. It was more intentional. It was more mindful. And, you know, later that night, as I rested it, iced it, compressed it, elevated it, I was also mindful around, you know, this is, this is this moment. This is where it is. The pain is resolving. I'm treating it. Um, it was very helpful. Another app for, uh, mental health. And this one is in particular for depression is Talkspace. And I love apps because, you know, I know a lot of people are embarrassed to go to, there's a stigma still with mental health issues, with depression, with anxiety, um, suicidal thoughts. They all have a stigma associated with them so people don't want to be seen going to a therapist and talkspace is an online therapy platform that provides the users with the confidential support of a licensed therapist through an easy to use and hipaa compliant app so hipaa for privacy and so it's also more affordable for people and and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist within your region from the comfort of your own device. So you can be at home. You don't have to drive. That's one thing I do love about the post pandemic world is that a lot of things are online now and it makes it easier. You don't have to pay for parking. You don't have to drive there. You don't have to put the mileage on your your car. You don't have to, you don't have as big of gas bills and you don't have to run in and potentially see your neighbor in, in the office, which believe me has happened. People are you know, they, they want their privacy maintained. And this is definitely one way that you can do that. There is another one for addiction and it's called, I am sober, which I had never heard about. And it's a sobriety tracker for recovery. You know, people need to know that they've gotten, you see it posted on social media, I'm 35 days sober. I'm three months sober. I'm two years sober. I'm 45 years sober. Um, You know, you see this and, and that helps people to get that affirmation and, you know, they want to track it. And as, as the days add up, it's very helpful. Tracking your sober days helps you build new habits and provides you with that motivation that you need to connect to a wide, network of people who are all striving for the same goal as well. And there's apps for sleep, better sleep, positive thinking, um, worry. So many people worry. And so, you know, there's so many different apps today. And if you're struggling out there and you're thinking you need some help, you need to talk to somebody, you know, you might think of an online therapy provider. And so if you want more information about this, you can go to verywellmind.com forward slash best mental health apps. I'm sure a lot of you have been gardening. You're well into gardening. Last week, I talked about how hand grip is reflective of your overall health, especially your cardiovascular health. And it's so good that you have a good hand grip, you know, the strength of your uh handshake or uh, your ability to pick things up and one of the ways to improve your hand grip which nobody really talks about in healthcare but it's a very important marker uh is gardening and so it made me think about getting down and dirty in the garden and you know how you can do that um, what are some of your gardening tips? I'd love to hear them. Text in 877 399 9898 What are some of your successes? You know, do you have a green thumb or are you looking for tips? And I thought about people who might be looking for gardening tips, and you're definitely not going to get them from me. <laughs> I um I like perennials. <laughs> okay, it shows you. Um, but I do I love flowers. I love Clematis. I love hydrangea. I I love um, roses and I love poppies. And so there's certain ones that I absolutely adore. Um, but I do like them kind of easy. I like them in sometimes in buckets (laughs) on the deck. Um, but I do love lots of flowering happening, not much of a, uh, gardener in terms of vegetables. So not my thing we do the requisite tomatoes and, and lettuce and even forget to go and pick them um, once they have uh, grown but you know we have a southwest exposure it's pretty sunny so it's good for tomatoes but really you're not going to get too much gardening advice from me um, watering is key but sometimes we have those water restrictions you might have those as well where you live and so that can make gardening uh, a challenge and summer is my favorite time but you know it's Obviously getting going in the spring is good. Um, You know, bringing things in, this is a cost-effective way, bringing some things in from the, from one year, um, bringing them in. A neighbor told me about this and um, save them over the winter and you can, replant them or bring them back out to the window boxes the next year so saving you a trip to the garden uh center as well as um saving a little money in your pocket but you know there's other ways that you can get some great advice for gardening because there are gardening apps uh there's a number of different ones and sometimes they're available only on android um but know so you have to go through your little list but according to sloan and sons gardenbenches.com blog the best gardening apps um one of them is moon and garden i love this one because moon and garden it's because it's just so unusual to my mind anyway but maybe it's not unusual to yours moon and garden helps you track the phases of the moon phases and the planting times for different crops it's based on the idea that the moon is biodynamic and can affect your crop success which i think it probably can i think a lot affects your crop success and the the app also has a built-in planner to track what needs to be done in your garden and when and so you can store all of your gardening notes i'm not somebody who puts anything in a notebook anymore i i'm all online all my notes everything leaf snap is another one and so this helps you to determine if something is a plant or an invasive weed, and you know I looked up some of these apps, checked them out, and some of them hadn 't had posts for a while, so it 's not like it's they 're all very recent, but a lot of them have a lot of information just because they haven 't posted in a while doesn 't mean that there 's not value there. Um, Garden tags, I think, was one that hadn 't posted in a little while, but on this it 's a social media platform for gardeners, and you can follow other gardeners, see what plants they 're growing, get advice and you know it is a great forum but i did notice that they hadn't really um posted in a while uh grow it exclamation point helps you track your plants in your garden and you can add photos and notes and even ask questions to the community it has a built-in plant encyclopedia and so you can learn more about plants in your garden i mean some people just say that they're just hopeless in terms of of gardening a lot of people retire and that's the expectation is that you retire you need to garden (laughs) it's just not something i'm looking forward to for my retirement (laughs) anyway because i feel like i've gardened already um i'm gardening now i mean i i like the balance of of what i do in terms of work and sport and gardening and and i really can't see giving up work and focusing on gardening myself but maybe that's different. Um, maybe it's a, you're having a different thought and you're just desperate to spend all of your time in the garden. And I certainly know a lot of people who spend a lot of time in the garden and, um, to each his own, I say, um, another one that I thought was pretty good was garden eyes. And it helps you plant plan and manage your garden. You can track your plants and again, the notes and that kind of thing. Um, my soil is another one as well. And so it has some tips on how you can actually get the best soil and what fertilizers that you can use and helps you to test and manage your soil. So, and, and if these apps don't work, I'm sure that there are other apps out there, but it's just a good thing to understand and to know that, um, you know apps are you know so helpful there's so much information and pertinent information and information that you might need um i mentioned garden eyes did i it helps you plan and, and manage your garden um, which is good and the garden plan pro and that's a very comprehensive gardening app and again it helps you to plan and design your garden and keep tra- keeping track of your plants and garden tasks i have a sense that a lot of people have a green thumb they've been gardening for a long time you know there's such satisfaction when i do remember to bring the lettuce in from the outside (laughs) you know when you think i've grown this in my garden this is fantastic versus picking it up at the at the supermarket you know there's just so much more satisfaction and then getting out there being with mother nature being with the earth you know it, it helps to make your home look beautiful having a beautiful garden You know, I know that sometimes I'll drive by houses and I'll just think if I could just trim away at that garden and, you know, expose the ground to some sun. Um, Because some people can let their gardens overgrow, they can let their yards overgrow, or they're not um, cutting their lawns, that kind of a thing. But, you know, it's nice to have that garden pride, if you will. You know, it does relate to. Home ownership. And even if you don't have a home, if you have a deck, if you have an apartment, you have a little bit of outdoor space, that's all you need. It's wonderful to plant uh, pots and herbs. And, you know, there's lots of different um, styles of like wooden gardens for herbs and vegetables that you can have on a deck. Um, and so it, you don't necessarily have to have a home in order to experience the joy and the beauty of. Uh, gardening. And um, because you can just have your own little garden, um, or there's also community gardens as well. And, you know, that might be a nice way to actually meet people, meet new people, is to go to the community garden. Um, or you might want to take a, if you've never gardened before, you might want to take a course. You can probably take an online course for gardening basics and, and then get into the pests and the plant diseases because, you know, garden isn't all flowers and roses. (laughs) Doesn't always come up roses. Um, you, there's certain bugs, slugs that can, can get into the garden and things can be eaten. And, you know, depending on where you live, deer can also come and eat your vegetables that kind of a thing but there's so much to learn about the soil the fertilizing the composting mulching air in watering basically pruning that's something else that a lot of people don't know and you know i was fortunate i was taught how to prune by an older neighbor when i was quite young and, um, you know, it's a skill that I'm still quite proud of, you know, I may not be a great gardener, but boy, can I prune. Thanks for listening to the Sunday night health show podcast. You can subscribe, rate or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me nurse at hotmail.com. And I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show for now, have a happy and healthy week.